You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the prophecies of Isaiah chapter 40, beginning at verse 9. This particular scripture reading is chosen in connection with Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which speaks about God the Father, our Creator. And we'll note that in this particular chapter, as well as in this entire second part of Isaiah's prophecies, there is much glory given to God the Father. We begin our reading then at verse 9. You bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart and gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings, Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom, then, will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it, The man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? For who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9. Question and answer 26. And in this particular question and answer, you have a compilation of most of the things that Scripture says about our great God and Father in Christ. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth? That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ, his Son, my God, and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as a faithful Father. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, Thanksgiving time is one of those times of the year when we like everything to be warm, cozy, and comfortable. We want to be able to look back on a year of good economic growth and activity. We want to be able to celebrate another bounteous harvest. We want to be able to relax and to enter the winter months filled with assurances that all is well in the world. Alas, however, that's not quite the picture in this year of our Lord 2011. The storm clouds are building and getting darker. By all appearances, we are entering into turbulent economic times. The stock markets of the world have been acting of late like yo-yos. America's fiscal problems continue to mount. Greece is tottering or teetering on the edge of insolvency. And it appears as if Ireland, Spain, Italy, and France are not far behind. The question arises, is our international financial system about to collapse? You see, these are scary times. And I might add, these are also times in which to examine our own personal financial houses. How much debt are you carrying? 
How much money are you spending on frivolous things? Do you have a nest egg to fall back on? There was a time when most Christians were astute financial stewards and managers But the question arises, have these last decades of affluence made us careless, even mindless? Have we joined the world in its great shopping spree? So there are lots of things to consider together, and also personally this Thanksgiving. And yet I would say that in spite of the gloom and the doom in all the forecasts, there is no reason to panic or to despair. And why? Well, because, very simply, we are not all alone in this world. It's not only a case of us only and all those unknown forces out there. No, we have company. We have great wonderful, unimaginable company. And thanks to our company, we can face our dark and uncertain economic future with confidence. And so who accompanies us? Who gives us hope? Who injects us with confidence? It's none other than our God. The God that we have read about, and that we confess together in Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So I'd like to preach to you this afternoon in the following theme, our great creator God, we should be thrilled with his identity, awed by his activity, and responding to his generosity. Well, beloved, when you turn with me now to Lord's Day 9 of the Heidelberg Catechism, a number of things are apparent. The first is the Catechism is about to begin to explain the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith. The second thing that we are about to begin is a whole new section under the bold letters, God the Father and our creation. And the third thing that you need to note is that we are about to take a closer look at that opening line of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So how does Lord's Day 9 begin? Well, notice it doesn't begin with things, with theories, or with abstract truths. No, Lord's Day 9 begins with a person. And indeed, it opens and it draws our attention immediately to the greatest person in all the world, in all the universe. Notice what he's called. He's called God. He's called Father. He's called Creator. He's called the Almighty. You know, it's hard to find anywhere else a more exalted beginning and a more exalted person than this. And so you see, for openers, the Heidelberg Catechism points us to God, to God the Father, to God the Almighty Father, to God the Almighty Father and Creator. And why does it do so? Well, because it wants us to begin with Him. 
First things first. It wants us to begin life at the beginning, and that beginning is God. And of course, in a way, that should be a rather obvious thing, right? But yet, if truth be told, it's not quite as obvious as we may assume. How much time do we actually spend every day thinking about our God? How much is he on our mind, in our thoughts, and in our plans? Is he the center of our life? Or is he somewhere on the sidelines? Is he our starting point in all things, or is he some kind of backup? I suspect that all too often the latter is the case. You know, we so easily treat God as an afterthought, as an ambulance driver, as a spectator. And now precisely because of this kind of approach, it is good that the catechism begins with him and reminds us about the central and pivotal place that he must have in our lives. So actually, how does the catechism begin? It begins with the opening line of the creed, and it's a line that starts personally, I believe in. Notice it doesn't begin with we believe in. It's not so much communal as it is personal, not so much indirect as it is direct. I believe. In other words, this is about me and me only for a moment. Not about anybody else. Exclude them all. I believe. And notice, furthermore, it's about believing. And you know, what's believing? Well, you could say believing is being certain, it's being convicted and and convinced about something. It's not the same as I think, or I know, or we know. Rather than even coming from the mind, it's something that comes straight from the heart. We believe with the heart, And we confess with the mouth. That's the well-known opening of Article 1 of the Belgic Confession. But if this is, beloved, about me believing, it's also about me believing in someone. The creed opens, I believe in God. So what does that mean? It means I believe in someone who is so much greater, mightier, higher, fuller, deeper, wider than I am. It means that I believe that there is this great person at the center of the universe and that in him resides all knowledge, love, power, and majesty. It means that there is much more to life than what I can see or touch or theorize about. Beyond me, above me, and before me, there is God. Who is God? Who is the God of the creed? Well, first of all, notice he is Father. I believe in God, the Father. 
And you know, if you think of it, that puts a whole new spin on things. There are plenty of people in this world who believe in God. But who is he? And what is he? If you were to ask the deists of old, those philosophers of the 18th, 19th century, they would have said, he's a holidaying God. And if you were to ask many agnostics, they would say he's an indifferent God, or he is a judgmental God, or he is a cruel God, or a detached God. The answers are all over the map. But not here in the creed and in our confession. Here the answer is plain and profound. Our God is Father. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because if he's father, really and truly father, then then he cannot be indifferent or, or distant or cold or callous or arrogant or superior. And none of those descriptions fit. No, what fits is this. Our God is father. But first and foremost, he is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty five and following all things have committed been committed to me by my Father. And then he proceeds to add, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And here our Lord and Savior is saying that no one knows him as well as God the Father. And that no one knows God the Father as well as He, the divine, only begotten Son. So this God is first and foremost the Father of our Savior Jesus Christ. But then there is more, for Jesus adds almost immediately that He's also your Father. How often is that not stressed in Scripture? Take, for example, Matthew chapter 6. It's filled and loaded with the expression, your Father. Your Father in heaven. Your Father who sees in secret. Your Father who is unseen. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You see, our Savior is making it abundantly clear that this Father of His is not just His Father. but also our Father. He can claim Him, and we can claim Him. He can call on Him, we can call on Him. He is His. He's ours. Now, is that not a most comforting thought? Especially in these times and days of so much economic uncertainty. I don't know what the future holds. You do not know what will come along in this next year or decade. None of us can predict the kind of world that Liam is going to be living in. There are all of these uncertainties out there, and some of them look pretty ugly. And yet in the midst of all of these uncertainties, there is God. There's God our Father. There's God our Father in Christ. Are we afraid? 
Are we worried? Are we living in dread? And the best possible medicine is to turn to the Father. Yes, turn and, and look especially at, at that unique relationship between the Father and His divine Son. Look at how Jesus Christ often calls on Him. Read what He says to Him, for example, in John 17. See how He confides in Him. Notice how He finds His rest in Him. Isn't that a model for all of us? If our Savior can live his life of service and suffering every day out of the hand of his heavenly Father, why can we, the rest of the family, not do the same thing? And word and deed is constantly telling and showing us what a life lived in humble dependence on the Father is all about. And we need to learn from that. We need to learn to lean like he leaned. We need to look to him and imitate him. But then, beloved, the creed reminds us that not only do we have a great father to boast about and to lean on, we also have in him the greatest creator. And the catechism actually brings that out in three expressions. The first is this, he created heaven and earth. Now that alone is a stupendous statement. Some time ago, one of you gave me a DVD by a fellow by the name of Louis Giglio. I think it's called, How Great is Our God. And in that particular DVD, this Louis shows from all kinds of illustrations how awesome, how vast, how beautiful, how unimaginably great is the universe in which we live. He shows it can't just be one huge accident. There has to be a creator behind the vastness and the complexity of the heavens. And so, beloved, what marvels are not contained in that very bald statement, he created the heavens and the earth. But there's also a second statement here, for he created heaven and earth and all that is in them. And that expression, all that is in them, reminds us that each and everything that God creates has its own beauty, complexity, and wonder. By the way, do you know what the word disambiguation refers to? I asked the elders before the service. They're still thinking about it. And they came up with all kinds of complex answers. But, but actually, this word really means a slug. 
This ambulation or disambiguation is a slug. A slug is a disambiguation. If you don't believe me, you can read it in Wikipedia. Um, so why do I mention a slug? Well, you know, a slug is probably in the minds of most of us just about the lowest creature you can imagine, right? You step on slugs. You tell your kids to get the salt pot. Watch them shrivel up and die before your very eyes or turn into mush. Nobody has any use for slugs. Why did God make slugs of all things? Well, you need to investigate that. You know that slugs have feelers that in them have both sight and smell. Do you know that they emit two types of mucus? Do you know that they have both male and female reproductive organs? And do you know they're important? They're important to break down the leaves and the fungus and the dead vegetables in your garden? Now, that's only one little element of of creation that God has made. And and it's a rather despicable element in our eyes. But read about it. I read about it, and I'm not sure I'm going to step on any more slugs. Not that I'm Hindu. But I'm not going to step on any more slugs because I think that even a lowly slug has been made by God for some purpose. And that's not for my shoe leather. And so I challenge you. Look at the creation. Look at at everything that God has made. No matter how insignificant you think it is, dig into it. And you'll find beauty and complexity and wonder. And you'll marvel. So what does that tell us? It tells us that God is a great creator. That expression, all that is in them, that's just about as bold as an expression as heaven and earth. But it contains great treasures. Now, there's also a third expression that we need to take note of here, and it's that expression out of nothing. The Catechism asserts that God created heaven and earth and all that is in them out of nothing. In other words, before God called them into existence, they did not exist. In the line of Augustine, Calvin and others, the Catechism insists that this great creator father of ours is actually not dependent on anything. He doesn't need pre-existent matter. He doesn't need unformed matter. There isn't some other force in the universe that first has to go to work and then at a certain opportune time God figures out, oh, maybe now it's time I start creating. No, our God is sovereign. He orders everything into existence. Let there be light. And there is light. Let there be expanse between the waters. And there is an expanse. Let there be land and it forms. 
He, as it were, snaps his divine fingers. And whatever he wants created is created. So what does that tell you? Surely this tells us that not only do we have in our God the greatest Father, but we also have the greatest, greatest Creator. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, as many of you know, died this past week. And in many respects, Steve Jobs was a visionary and a genius. Out of his fertile mind came Macintosh computers, iPods, iTunes, iPhones, iPads, and lots of other i-this and i-thats. But you know, even Steve Jobs, in all of his creative genius, cannot hold a candle to our Creator. And indeed, ask yourself, where did this man get his genius from? And the answer is from the same person from whom we all receive our abilities. Namely, God, the Creator. So who is on our side? God, our Father, is standing there. And God, our Creator, is standing there. And now what should we do with respect to Him? We should simply place all of our trust in Him. And indeed, it has to be said that this great God and Father of ours, this Creator God, will not profit us anything unless we put all of our hope and confidence in Him. God does not ask you to understand Him, but He does ask you to trust Him. And you know, the Catechism makes that that same point in the second half of answer 26 when it says, In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. And will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends upon me in this life of sorrow. Beloved, are you doing that? Are you teaching your children? To do that? Are they living and talking a life of trust? And notice, by the way, this is no wimpy kind of trust either that we're speaking about. This is not about a little bit of trust or or part-time trust or selective trust. No, this is about total, complete, and absolute trust. The Catechism says... Trust so completely as to have no doubt. You know what that means? It means this trust is childlike. If you listen closely to how your little children speak about you as their parents, you get the hint. In their eyes, you are super dad 
and super mum. You could do anything. You could do everything. And they have no reservations about this whatsoever. You'll never hear your children debating, can dad really do this? Can mom really do that? And I'm not so sure, and there are these factors to consider. They don't go there. They trust. And that childlike kind of trust, that's what God, our Father and Creator Almighty, wants from us. That's what we should render to Him. And then it's a childlike trust, notice, that that extends at the same time to everything. No exceptions, no restrictions. He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. Food, clothing, health, shelter, he will provide. Salvation, forgiveness, righteousness, eternal life, peace and glory, he will provide. Trust him with everything. Beloved, that's the message here. And one more thing, trust him not just to provide, but also to change and turn and intervene. He will turn, it says, to my good, whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. Somebody once said to me they don't like the expression in the form for baptism about a veil of tears. And some other people have said to me they didn't like the expression a life of sorrow. And I've said, just wait a while. Live a little longer. Experience a bit more of life. And you'll clue in. And how true that is. He will also send, turn to my good, whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. Where did that come from? Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And also think of Matthew 6. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And there Jesus is talking about food and drink and clothes and and all the other stuff of daily living. Don't think your Father doesn't know. Don't, don't, Don't think He doesn't know what's going on in your little mind. What you're worried about, concerned about, fretting about. He knows. And not only does he know, but he also supplies. Here's a little exercise for you. Turn to the book of Psalms. Look at the book of Psalms. Psalm 3. The Lord sustains me. Psalm 4. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 5. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. Psalm 6. The Lord accepts my prayer and all of my enemies will be ashamed. Psalm 9, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And you can go on. Every psalm is a psalm that calls on us to place our trust and our hope and our confidence in our God. Nowhere does God promise you an easy life. 
a relaxed life, an affluent life, or a trouble-free life. He does, however, promise you a life in which he will travel with you. And a life in which one day the misery will be gone and the goodness will triumph and it will make way for glory. All who trust in him will not be disappointed. And so, beloved, in spite of the times and the headlines, let us go on in good confidence, trusting that our God, our great, glorious God, will provide. He'll see us through. He'll turn it around. Adopt an attitude of personal trust in Him. Teach your children to trust in Him. Trust in Him today and always. Because our God and our Father in Jesus Christ will never forsake us or disappoint us. He is able as our Almighty God to do all things. And He will as our faithful Father give us all things too. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.